Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we turn to the book of 1 Kings as we look at God's design for the role of a father and husband and the biblical masculinity of men. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 2 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Godly Dangerous Masculinity. But there is a benefit in having occasions where we take subjects, doctrines, uh, maybe take one individual truth and elaborate on that. So that is what we will be doing this morning as we on Father's Day consider masculinity and such. So we're going to begin in 1 Kings 2 verses 2 through 3. I'll read it and then we'll pray together. So let's read. This is David on his deathbed, speaking to his son Solomon as he is getting ready to take the throne. Verse two, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the, cur- keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Let's pray. Merciful Father in heaven, please come and have mercy on us, O God. Please, God, give us your blessing. We ask, Lord, that you will protect this service. We ask that you will cast the unclean spirits far away from us, O God, that you will send your spirit to enable us to think on your truths, to enable us to understand, to enable us to worship and worship rightly, O God. Father, what we are doing right now we know is going to war. And Satan wants to do everything that he can to distract this and ruin this. And so I ask, oh God, that you will come and bless this. Please give us eyes to see your truth. Ears that are able to hear, willing to hear. Hearts that are humble before you, oh God low and ready to receive, not wanting to judge your word, not wanting to try to twist and manipulate truth so that we try to get your word to say what we want it to say, not going into the realm of opinion, but Lord, coming to your truth. So please help us, help us to be honest, help us to be faithful. Father, I pray that you help me to teach, to be faithful to your word, not to speak opinion, that you would set a guard over my lips, O God, not to say what's false, vulgar, offensive in a wrong kind of way, but only what's true and right. So please, God, come and bless and transform, we pray, O God, and we ask these things through Christ. Amen. C.S. Lewis once commented, speaking of effects that he saw in the culture where he lived, He said, we make men without chest and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. What he spoke about in 1940s England was a way that he was seeing in his culture, popular philosophies gaining ground, spreading through the masses that we currently see in our culture as well. A wave of philosophy had swept through England at that time that mocked honorable masculinity. 
Well, we don't have to stretch very far to see the same kind of thing, the same kinds of ideas and gaining in ground currently in our culture. We spent a good part of our time on Mother's Day about a month ago, looking at God's truth and celebrating glorious, godly femininity and contrasting it with the philosophies that are gaining popularity in our culture. We saw that God's design for maleness and femaleness is one of the foundational truths that this world is built on. We won't even understand how this world is supposed to work. You won't understand yourself. You won't understand the design of God without understanding God's design for maleness, femaleness, marriage, sexuality, how all of this comes together. God has designed this to be a work of art and wisdom, displaying his glory. And so because of this, it should not surprise us that Satan wants to spoil that work of art. Throughout the history of this world, guys, even going back into the Old Testament, we can see some of the context of things that were happening. Satan has always been trying to ruin God's design, to spoil the beauty, to spoil the wisdom and the order of what he has made. And he's done it in a plethora of ways. There have been seasons and cultures where Satan sought to destroy God's design by bringing men to abuse their power and strength and force. And of course, that still happens. That's probably been the way that it has more often than not happened in history, the abuse of power. But in a large scale kind of way today, especially in the West and in our own nation's culture, we are seeing we're seeing that the design of God is being spoiled by there being an embarrassment of masculinity, an abdication of masculinity. Satan seeks to make men act like women and women act like men. Our own American culture has seen several decades of a great feminization of men. It's come through a whole series of methods and such that we could talk about on another day, but always remember this as well. Every time a philosophy gets popular in culture, it's, it's going to make its way into the, the church in some way because we live in this culture. We don't see everything perfectly yet. We always have to be battling to study the scriptures, to see with clarity so that we, we see the, the way that God truly has made the world and be able to notice the contrast and errors where there are popular philosophies that oppose that. Douglas Wilson has a series, uh, Dad's, uh, it's a must listen series called Father Hunger. And in it, he describes the feminization of the American church. That part of what we have seen for the last four decades, four decades especially, it's come through new, numerous movements, some more than others within Christianity, is that especially for the last four decades, we've been sending our most effeminate men into the ministry. That if you picture in a given church there after the service, there might be the boys out in the parking lot who are wrestling and playing football and such. And then there, there might be some more of the docile boys who sit inside with the rosy red cheeks and 
Douglas Wilson describes the, the little ladies walking up and pinching the little boy's cheeks and telling him how sweet he is and saying, you are just so sweet. Have you ever considered going into the ministry? As if sweetness were like the one pastoral qualification. And he says, we've been, and for decades, we've been sending our sweetest boys with the rosiest red cheeks instead of sending the boys playing football where we should have been. And look what has come a great feminization of the church, a great weakening of the strength and fortitude that God has designed men to live and model and provide for the church. God made men to be men because we need men. Just like we said on Mother's Day, God made women to be women because we need women. God's design in this and the complementing of one another lives out his glorious design. God's design for maleness and femaleness is wonderful and needs to be celebrated. Like understand that part of what we do when the church gathers sometimes is to remind ourselves of truths we already know, but to come again, look at it again, delight in it and encourage one another in it so that we rejoice in the design of God. And see another foundational truth that is going to be critical to living in this world, to living under God, to understanding the Bible is to understand what the Bible means when it says that God is infinitely wise. To say that God is infinitely wise is to say that he is infinitely brilliant. He is infinitely and astoundingly genius. See, occasionally as we read the word of God and we're all growing to learn those truths and conform our thinking to it, we might occasionally, especially in our early years, come across a truth in the Bible and we see it and my flesh doesn't like it. And so we might say, well, I see that it's right. It's the right thing to do. But boy, I think my idea would work better. We have to come to see that when God makes something, he is infinitely wise, that when he designs something, it's genius. It's brilliant. God's design for maleness femaleness, and all of the ways we complement together, um, it displays his glory. The world does not work the way that it is supposed to when male and female are not living out their design. Listen very carefully. The church does not work like it's supposed to when this is not being lived out. The family doesn't thrive and flourish like it's supposed to. Marriage does not thrive and flourish like it's supposed to. You individually will not thrive and flourish like God wants you to if we lose and, and confuse and skew and contort God's design for maleness and femaleness. Nations crumble when this is skewed. And if I can try to bring some application to this in light of some most recent events, our nation right now is being divided over various philosophies and even one particular movement called the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, I know it can get a little awkward at this moment right here. And I want to tell you that I'll be very careful. It is not the church's job to be given opinions on politics, but it is our job to preach the truth of scripture 
And very, very often that is shown where that speaks to matters of politics. Like abortion is not a political subject. This is a law of God subject. And similarly, when it comes to this particular movement that we have right here, Christians are really torn over how we ought to see this movement. Because on one hand, we see that true injustices exist. We see examples of them. We long for people of every degree of melatonin to be treated with dignity as image bearers of the living God. And so a movement like this has attractiveness. But at the same time, I need you to hear me carefully. You just cannot believe and submit to the word of God and join the movement, the organization that is being called the Black Lives Matter movement. It is another classic bait and switch that Satan is all the time pulling. It's just like the opening line of feminism. The opening line of feminism is, don't you want women to be treated fairly? And Christians cry, yes. Then comes the switch. A godless ideology that attacks maleness and femaleness and seeks to destroy God's design for marriage. A similar thing is happening in this current movement. We want black lives to be treated with dignity. We agree with the sentiment and the statement. And we Christians ought to work for that. We do work for that. And, and listen, we also need to be careful that just because we see error on one side, we don't swing to the other and an overreaction, which is oftentimes a problem. But here is the bait and switch. The group that goes by this name is an actual organization handling millions upon millions of dollars and they have a doctrinal statement. Particularly, they, had a, they have a set of six statements and here is number five. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Now, as they explain it, we don't have to be guessing what they mean. They tell us what they mean to put it in more biblical terms. They seek to destroy the idea that God's design for marriage and the family at its most basic level, which is married husband and wife living in the same home, is good, wise, and healthy. There is a movement of forces that are striving to attack God's design in this world. Now listen. In the spiritual realms, that's been happening for thousands of years. But what we're also saying is there are groups of humans who get together and hold meetings and say, how can we destroy this? The church is called to live this out and listen with joy, to not be embarrassed about God's design, to see its beauty to see the wisdom, the order, and the glory, and the, the work of art that God designed it to be, and to joyfully live it out, even though that means that the world is going to look in at the church and are going to call you men chauvinist. They're going to look in and call you women weak and ignorant because we believe God's design. Let them chide. When they look in, they will see marriages and families flourishing and living God's order and design. The people of God must unashamedly see his wisdom and live his wisdom. And a major part of this is understanding God's design for masculinity. 
Little boys need to be told the stories of honorable masculinity. Little boys need to have 2 Samuel 23 read to them. 2 Samuel 23, we'll, we'll go there at one point today, is uh, one of the sections that describes uh, David's mighty men. And I forget what all I've passed along, so I may have said this kind of thing before, but that passage there of David's mighty men recounting deeds of heroism, recount, recounting men who stepped up with, with courage and defended their nation and their families and such. Us men, we read that and we love it. And for years I read that passage and I would see it, you know, a chill runs up your spine, just like, oh, that's me. I wanna be Eleazar, I wanna go down in a pit and fight a lion on a snowy day, you know, all these accounts. We read that kind of thing and I'm like, oh, I love it. But I've asked the question, but I wonder why it's in the Bible. I wonder why it's there. Because it doesn't seem particularly spiritual. But I've come to now see it is a spiritual issue. When God gives us examples of great men and in other passages, great women to inspire us. And it is a spiritual issue when we live out the calling of God, even in what sometimes appear to be mundane ways, fulfilling our ministries that God has called us to. It is a spiritual issue. So what is true, honorable, godly, biblical masculinity? When David addressed Solomon and he said, show yourself a man. What did he mean? When the New Testament speaks to us men and says, act like men, what does it mean? It means there is a model. It means there is a standard. There is a kind of man God wants men to become. This morning, I want to just briefly pull together three images, three functions, three roles that husbands and fathers, we need to see ourselves as and seek to fulfill. This is not exhaustive. On other days, we will consider some others of those like a romancer, like a poet, because you're not an ape, you're made in the image of God. But here are three that we see this morning. Let me suggest these three briefly, leader, warrior, pastor, leader, warrior, pastor, the first leader. Husbands, fathers, picture yourself driving down the road. You're in a vehicle with your family. You're cruising down the road. This is a metaphor for life. You're all in the car heading down. Here is the question. Where are you heading? What's the destination? What's the end goal? What's the purpose? And then another significant question you're all in the vehicle together, who's driving? God designed husbands that you are in the driver's seat. And to say it a way that uh, the way truths are explained in Ephesians 5, and by the way, as an aside here, I am kind of unfairly just assuming that you were here a month ago and you remember everything that I said on the Mother's Day sermon and how we laid those foundations, okay? But Ephesians 5, if you're new to studying the Bible, is a passage that probably the clearest in all the Bible lays out God's functions and designs in some specifics that are there. It's not the only place. Ephesians 5 is simply further elaborating on Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, 
God's design for marriage, but it is a place that is uh, spelled out clearly. So if you're new to studying the Bible, encourage you this afternoon, go read Ephesians 5. I'm going to be making reference to it several times today. But the way that Ephesians 5 would, would say this would be this. It doesn't say husbands, you should be in the driver's seat. It says that you are. This is the place, the indicative. You were created as the leader. You are the leader, even for the husband who may not want to be. And as the leader, it is your job to know where you are to be heading. It is your job to know what is the destination and to have mapped out a course of how you're going to get there. And then you are inspiring and motivating those under your responsibility as we go there, which by the way, that's leadership in a nutshell, leadership in a nutshell, know where you're supposed to go, plan how to get there, inspire the troops to go. So on other days we could spend hours discussing all about the end goal. What is it we're supposed to be living? There is an easy answer to that, a quick answer, but that answer needs to be investigated for years. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are seeking to do that not only for ourselves, but to lead our families to all fulfill their God-given purposes, to know him, walk with him, thrive in every part of that way. And all of that is necessary to talk about, but then we also need to get to the specifics of what does that look like for my eight-year-old daughter and my 15-year-old son. It has to be mapped out and looked at. And on other days, we'll spend more time on those things, but for this, for this morning, we have to stay in the realm of big picture. Husbands, you are called to lead. The essence of husbanding is to lead, give, initiate, tend to, cherish, and pursue. Uh, husbands, you are not the responder, you are the first mover. God modeled husbands after himself whenever he designed marriage and he designed the function of the wife after that of the church. The scripture tells us that we love because God first loved us. God has been the initiator in those who know Christ. If you have understood the gospel, that you must be saved, you must be forgiven of your sins, Jesus is the way, by faith in him you will be saved, and you turn to respond to him, the Bible tells us God is the one who came to us. God is the first mover. We love because he first loved us. Husbands, you are to view your role in the same kind of way. It's not your wife's job to romance you. It's your job to romance her. It's not your wife's job to initiate. It's yours. She wasn't designed or called to pursue you, to chase you. It's your job to chase and pursue her. You're, husbands, you're not the gym. You're not the beauty. You're the beholder of the beauty. You are the one who gazes and cherishes, okay? The way that God designed this is you're not the, whoa, look how pretty he is. It's not that. It is you are the chaser, the giver, the initiator, the pursuer. The essence of husbanding is to lead, to give, initiate, romance, pursue, cherish, love. The wife is to receive, reciprocate, respond, serve in kind, submit, and follow. She is to count part 
your action. You lead, she is to follow. You pursue, she is to reciprocate. The word husband in older times, like in the King James Version of John 15, where Jesus is giving that metaphor of, of the vineyard. I am the vine, you are the branches. Husbandman is the word that spoke to the one who tended the grapevines. Song of Solomon uses this imagery. Song of Solomon speaks of his bride as a garden. Husbands, you're not the garden. You're the one who tends the garden. You are to love and cherish and pursue so that she blossoms and flourishes. You are to work so that she is brought to great joy. Again, you know, I'm trying to be careful not to speak too maturely here. So understand adults, I'm going to, you know, be vague. Um, God has put a metaphor in marital intimacy. And I believe that this is revealed in the book of Song of Solomon, that even within marital intimacy, there is a sermon that is preached in poetic symbols. The husband gives and the wife receives. There is the counterpart to the role of the husband. But men, being an effective leader does take an incredible amount of effort. There is a burden in leadership. There's an incredible amount of effort that is to be given to thinking, planning, preparing, mapping, navigating. Husbands, we are to spend time considering, evaluating. Okay, so if here is the end goal and here's a practical end goal, here's something very practical I want to accomplish. How do I get there? I, I want to have a joyful, flourishing, thriving marriage. How do I work to make that happen? I want my children to be discipled warriors, followers of Christ. I want my children to be um, men, women who serve, who are willing to die for Christ. What do I need to be doing that will most likely, or at least fulfilling my part, bring this about? Husbands, we are to be students of leadership. Um, even if in the job you work, if you're bottom rung of the ladder and have no authority at your job, if you have children, you're a leader. And we are to be students of leadership, striving to learn how to do this effectively. We are to be winsome leaders, striving to shepherd the heart. Because fathers, leading volunteers has some significant difference from leading employees. A, a boss can be, he ought not be, but he can be a jerk and still get some work done because the employees want a paycheck. Of course, he would have better, better fruitfulness if he weren't like this, but it can still happen. When dad is a jerk, harsh, authoritarian, it never ends well because it's something else entirely to lead and shepherd those who later won't have to follow you. To lead volunteers, there has to be the inspiring of their hearts to want the end goal. And it comes the same with children. Dads, if we rule with an iron fist and are harsh, when they're young, we might even have people compliment us because our children behave, but it's because they've been broken. But later on, when that resentment comes out, it never ends well. We are to be winsome 
godly servant leaders seeking to shepherd hearts. We must be students of leadership. Second role and function to consider, that of warrior. In 2 Samuel 23 that I mentioned earlier, you, if you're in 1 Kings, it's only a few pages before uh, 1 Kings. You can flip back to 2 Samuel 23 there. I'll read a passage here in just a second. We have all these accounts of heroism. Some of them are just very short. Look for a second at uh, a guy named Shema. This one always sticks out to me in verse 11. After him was Shema, the son of Agi, a Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a, a, plot of, a plot of ground full of lentils and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it and struck the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. You know, we could probably list, I don't know, a couple dozen truths from the Bible that people think it is taught one way when actually the perspective of the Bible is entirely different. And when it comes to how people view violence and what they think the Bible says is actually very different. It's one of the most misunderstood. I just never cease to encounter and have these conversations with folks who will say something where someone did something wicked and they'll be like, man, justice needs to be done. But you know, preacher, I know God doesn't want that. And I'm like, wait a second, where did you get this idea? Where did you come to this conclusion that somehow God is against violence and justice is bad? That's a complete misunderstanding that actually comes from several sources we don't have time for today, but ways that the church caved to culture when that was trendy and a fad. But it's not biblical. You may remember that the prophet Samuel himself had a moment that there was a wicked man that the Lord had commanded King Saul to put to death. Saul had refused. And the prophet Samuel walked up to this wicked man named Agag. And here's how scripture reads. Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord. And scripture says that God was pleased with what Samuel did. God demands that justice be done. And oftentimes justice demands violence. Not always. We ought not to be warmongers, but oftentimes justice demands violence. The defense of the nation involves and demands violence. Men, God calls us to be willing to stand up to evil. God demands of us that we be willing to fight the wolves. The Bible does not promote what has sometimes been called nice guy syndrome. You know the type? It's what's being promoted in the world around us. They smile, they're docile, they're tame, they pacify their wives, they do the laundry and people say, what a nice guy. But men who are unwilling to spill blood when it is necessary and surely somebody's bound to misunderstand what we're talking about here. You know that God commands us to be kind, to be loving. We are commanded by God to be gentle, to be patient. Jesus showed us that when we are insulted with even a backhand, 
that we are to turn the other cheek. But misunderstandings have come with this idea that Jesus was a pacifist and teaches pacifism. This is not the case. God calls men to be gentle, but dangerous. Godly masculinity calls us to be kind, but courageous, meek, but willing to throw down when it is necessary, like the prophet Samuel. You know, so we have examples like David, who was a warrior for his entire life, and we have respect for that. But there were also men like Samuel, humble and meek, but willing to throw down when it was necessary. Men, we are to imitate Jesus, who is both lion and lamb. Jesus, who is the lion who snaps necks when necessary, the table flipper cleansing the temple from his throne in heaven, executing judgment. But he is also towards his people, towards the weak, towards the helpless, the fatherless, the widow, those who cry for mercy. He is lamb-like in his gentle mercy. Godly men are called to imitate this lion and lamb. God is good, but he is not safe. Men, we are to be good but not safe. We are to be dangerous to the wicked. We all have tendencies that lean one way or another. To the men that the, the lion stuff comes very easily. We can have a tendency to sin against our families by harshness. If that's your tendency, feed the lamb. Learn gentleness. Promote patience within ourselves. But if your temptation is the other direction, feed the lion, develop courage. This takes effort to stir our hearts to a place that we are ready and willing to do what God calls us to do. Our culture always wants men to be cuddly lambs all the time. You notice that any sign of lion-like qualities are quickly shouted down as toxic. It's the new catchphrase, toxic masculinity shown anytime. Men, do not stop. Do not let the world defang you. God gave you your canines for a reason. You need them in a cursed world. Men, rejoice that a day is coming when violence will no longer be necessary, but it is not yet. That age and that kingdom is not yet fully here. Until then, men are called to be sheepdogs. And let me say a, an important word to dads of boys. The norm right now is for young boys to grow up quite effeminate, quite docile. There is an intentional effort. So again, there are groups of humans who get together and have meetings to discuss how can we make boys weak? This is the trend. And the greatest contributor to this though, sadly, is dads. See dads, there is inside of your boys that lion that God created him to be. But if he only spends time around his mom and docile boys at school, that lion is never going to develop within him. Dads, there has to be the bringing of sons to go do lion things. There has to be sitting on the bed at night and having discussions about lion behavior to develop that within him. 
There, there has to be a way that he comes to understand that it is not something to be ashamed of, but something to be developed, but under control and in submission to God. We just see this all the time. We interact with a lot of young men in our good news program and such. And one of the, one of the ways, this is one of those we really try to highlight as we teach young men. And you would just be amazed at what happens sometimes whenever we're speaking to these middle school boys and we show them something like 2 Samuel 23. And I'll, I'll lean in, I'll tell those young guys, look me right in the eyes. That's a man right there. This is what it means to be a man. And you should see what happens in some of these young men. And some of these young men, it's the first time they've ever been told that this is good. It's the first time that that kind of behavior and these desires to protect, these desires to defend the widow and the orphan, that these things are good and ought to be developed. And it's just like, so, it's just like a flame gets ignited within them. And yes, there has to be the winsome uh, talk about wisdom of when to be fierce and when to be gentle, but we must see that there is a calling in this. God put the desires for adventure inside of us so that we would go do great and risky things for the kingdom of God. Fathers of daughters, we are to model what masculinity should be. We are to model what a great man looks like. I mean, I want to be careful with my language here that I'm not be insulting, but if you don't want your daughters bringing home undesirable boys... Make the version of masculinity that they define all men by to be so great, they are just uninterested in the undesirable young men. And fathers of daughters, we should be men that your daughters, boyfriends, and pursuers don't want to tangle with. Not because we're mean, but because we're willing. Fathers of daughters, we are to also model what masculinity is to look like. In a cursed world, it is absolutely necessary for men to be willing to throw down. And it's interesting that only six months ago, you know, there's always this, there's always this contingency within the population that when we talk like this, they snicker. Oh, you guys just like to feel macho. Oh, in our modern times, there's no need for thinking about those kinds of things. Oh, you ridiculous man. I don't think anybody's snickering anymore right now. As America watches its cities burn and seeing wolves let loose. If you live in a middle-class bubble your whole life, you can be oblivious to wolves and what they do. But why don't you go ask a CASA worker sometime about the wolves and what they can do? So long as wolves are in the world, sheepdogs are necessary. And men of God, we're called to be those sheepdogs. We are called to be those who are willing to spill blood and throw down when necessary. We must know when to and when not to, but we must be willing. And yes, it is a spiritual issue. And then thirdly, the role of pastor. Ephesians 5 explains that husbands, fathers, we have the responsibility of leading our families. And that means most importantly, spiritually shepherding them. That's just the language of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 6 gives you dads specifically the command to bring up your children, 
raise them in the discipline, the nurture, the instruction of the Lord, the instruction of the scriptures. Now for just a second there, consider why do we emphasize so much the spiritual side of things? Because you understand that we're called to train them up and raise them in every single dimension of life. We're called to raise them up so that our children know how to work and aren't lazy, have discipline and self-control. We're called to train them up in every dimension. So, so why is there always the emphasis on spiritual? It's because, yes, we can say that the spiritual is the most important because what does any of it matter if your child does not know Christ and enters an eternity of hell? But it's also that we have to understand that the spiritual dimension of them being right with God and growing in Christ is the foundation, the source from which everything else flows out of. So yes, we're to raise our children to know how to eat and drink and work and marry and raise children and thrive in the world as image bearers following Christ. It is the spiritual then flowing into every aspect of life. And so yes, it begins with the gospel, but it doesn't stop with salvation. Fathers, when your children make a profession of faith and turn to Christ, it's not like, okay, now we're good. That's the beginning. Now we grow them to follow Christ in all ways. But we must think along these lines. We are to train. We are to equip. You are in a position of pastor of your family. And so understand there's no place in the Bible that says that explicitly. But pastoral kinds of instructions are given to us, fathers. Shepherding kinds of instructions are given to us that we are striving to shepherd their hearts on to follow and want Christ. But see, it's important that we think of it in the right kinds of ways. Because men, we have a temptation. We have a temptation to sometimes think of our families as like, we're already fine, and I just need to like not mess up. Like maybe the idea that like we're already built and established as a structure and I just need to make sure I don't burn the house down by doing something really stupid. But that's not the right metaphor. The right metaphor is not that we're already built, it's that we are to be building. This, this is a metaphor used often in scripture that our service to Christ in the kingdom of God is like building a temple and the amount of work, the quality of work that we do will be evaluated. One summer when I was in college and working construction, there was a group of us sent out to a job site, about a half a dozen of us, a handful or so. Almost all of us were young and knew nothing. And there was one skilled worker. We show up out there and you can imagine with such a young crew what that looked like. A lot, of, a lot of goofing around, a lot of joking, a lot of laughing, not a lot of work getting done and things and uh, messing up some things, having to tear down what we built. And at the end of a nine hour day with a handful of us, we had only managed to construct a single wall. Our boss was livid and wanted to know what happened. How could that many of you in that amount of time accomplish so little? Listen, friends, men, when it comes to our families, we have to have that metaphor and not just I'm going to coast and go through life and try not to mess up too badly. 
at the end of your life, we're going to answer to God to how much progress did we make in the construction in the work we engaged in. The quality of our work will be judged as well. Dads, there's a kind of man, your son, God wants your son to become. There's a kind of woman God wants your daughters to become and we are to work to that end. We know that we cannot make that happen, but we also must never use that as an excuse. You know, we must never enter that realm, like say, especially when our our children come to the teenage years and say something like, well, you know, I can't make them come to church, but you can do more than you are. We are to use our leadership for wooing, inspiring, shepherding, using every way in our function to glorify God by seeking to do this. A coach can't make his players become something, but he does work and labor and give, give exercises in practice in order to come to this. Our families are not already built. They must be built and we are to engage in this work. We have to realize that if we do not, someone else will. Your child will be formed into something. And the enemy of God, the enemy of your soul, the enemy of their souls is actively working to try to build even if we are not. We are to give effort. We are to give planning. We are to give thinking. How can we most effectively train? So dads, you're called to be, you're called to a role of pastoring your family. By the way, that also includes your wife. Your wife was designed by God to flourish the most when she is being led and invested in. A husband can say, well, my wife is more godly than I am. Well, she very well might be, but it's still the case that she is designed to flourish most when you're investing and you're designed to flourish most when you're doing it. This is the function and the role that God has designed. And when it comes to our children, there really is just no place that the church in the West has failed more than this one right here. The work of discipling and training young ones. The absolute most practical service you will ever give to the kingdom of God is that of living excellence in leading your family. And what I want to appeal to you is to see that doing this as God tells us to do, it's not just an occasional Bible study. It is daily investment, emphasis on daily work, daily investment. Dads live in the scriptures, no kiddie pool kind of spirituality, none of this two verses a day kind of stuff. Let's be consuming whole chapters. Let's live in the Bible, think the Bible, meditate in the night watches, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. And as we're living in the Bible and we come to see the world rightly. We will see the methods of God. We'll be living this out. You cannot bring your children where you are not going yourself. Know where you are going. Lead yourself there. Shepherd, inspire your family to follow you. The goal is for our children, not only to be disciples of Christ, but to be disciple makers, leading to generations of followers. Leader, warrior, pastor, and many others. The church is called to be a light to the world in this. We are to show the beauty of God's design 
for your own soul's sake, for your family's sake, live this out to the glory of God. And along the way, the world will see things and give glory to God as they see the wisdom of God displayed. And to you who are here, and I speak to you, if you have never turned to Christ, there is one who has moved first towards you. There is one who has initiated. There is one who has come to you even when you were uninterested in him. Christ has come and died his death on the cross. His resurrection has accomplished a way to have forgiveness of sins. And then even the Holy Spirit, when the work of God comes and calls us by name, if you find in yourself a desire to be right with God, Understand that it is God who has moved first and what we are called to do is to receive him and respond. There is a marriage in the husband and wife metaphor that is there. There is a way this is lived out. Christ has moved towards you. You receive him by faith, by placing your faith in Christ that he is the only one who can save you, not yourself, not any works, only Christ, and you trust in him, Christ will come into you and you will receive him by faith. Look to Christ, trust in Christ, and seek to live this out. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your mercy and we glorify you as we come to see more and more the ways you've worked in this world. I pray for the husbands, dads, grandpas, future husbands in the room, oh God. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will give grace, that we will live this out with excellence. Lord, for every man in how, however it is in our calling, in singleness and every way, that we will live out masculinity in a way that pleases you, oh God. Help us to glorify you. And I pray in this particular church, bless the marriages to flourish, bless the families to thrive. I pray that evangelism and discipleship will happen in the households here. Lord, I pray that you will save uh, the, the souls of our young ones. I pray God will glorify you in this. So please help us and lead us, oh God. Please give us your blessing as we, as we leave today. We ask all these things through Christ. Amen. Lord bless Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.